Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here today. I wondered what the Lord would have me to speak on today. And so, one of the things that I like to do is listen to guys that are speakers by habit, preachers. There's a station I favor the most. And sometimes I'll hear a good message there, and I think that message needs to be shared. And so that's one of those messages is what I'd like to share with you today. So some of it is things the Lord has shown me, and other things are things that I've learned. But nonetheless, I think that it's things that we as believers need to hear. And also besides that, you know, there's a good possibility that with this morning there's somebody here that doesn't know what it means to trust Jesus Christ. Um, And if they've had that opportunity before, they may have passed it by. Or maybe there's somebody here this morning that has never heard the gospel. I believe this message is for all. And you'll find out why at the end of the message. I believe it applies to both believer and, so to speak, unbeliever. The story is actually a very obscure story. One that, uh, you know, I was surprised after the first service. I talked to several people. They, They had never saw this story in the Old Testament. And so I'm not going to go there immediately. I have a few uh, introductory things to say, but we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 6 for those of you that wish to turn there now. But, you know, what I wanted to say is all of us in our life have random situations that occur. I call it stimulus response. You may have studied it in physics class or, or whatever. It, it, it's, that's beside the point. But essentially the idea is this, that in our life there is a multitude of stimulus that comes into our life through events that occur randomly, things that we have planned, that we do, and then the results fall where they may. And, and really what we find is that the stimulus creates a response in our life. The response is either really, when it sums up, a godly response or a sinful response. Will had an excellent lesson this morning in the Good News Service, and he talked about King Saul. King Saul was told to do something. He didn't do it to the extent that God had asked for it to be done. Therefore, it was considered to be disobedience. Saul had thousands of excuses why it wasn't disobedience, but nonetheless, God gets the message through to us that it was disobedience. My my whole point here being simply the fact that Saul had a stimulus response situation, and he acted in an ungodly way. And I believe that this occurs all too often in the life of believers, and what it does is separate us in fellowship from the Father. This separation in fellowship can bring, obviously, a lack of fellowship, which brings a lack of joy, which brings a lack of fruit in the life of a believer. And I don't want any of us to be there. I don't want to be there. And I know that you don't want to be there. One of the things that the Lord's put on my heart lately to get across to Christians is that happiness and joy are two completely different things. Happiness is something that is a random thing and it it can happen and it cannot happen. You know, just because you're not happy, just because your life is in turmoil right now, does not mean that God doesn't love you, that he's not there with you, and that maybe you're even out of fellowship. You want to read the book of Job, you can find that to be the case. But joy, on the other hand, is something that is in here that helps you face each day and is a joy that passes. It's a peace that passes all understanding. 
It's something the unbeliever does not know. It's something that the out-of-fellowship Christian wants back. It's something that they knew. And it's something that they don't have right now. It's something they want back. So today's lesson, I believe, is going to help us to focus a little bit more on that and help it to understand it a little bit better. And when you hear the story, you're going to say, whoa, that's random. How does he get that out of that? And that I hope to show you as the lesson goes along. One of the things that we experience today is that we live in a dark world. I hear so many people, and I I know you have too. Why do we even have kids? I don't think that people should have kids. I don't think they should bring them into the world. You hear that so-and-so is pregnant, and you think, oh, that's a shame. Another baby that's got to come face this world. What a terrible attitude. And and I'm going to confess that I've been there. I've, I've had that thought. We're all sinners, and we all have sinful thoughts. And I believe that is a sinful thought, because God told us to be fruitful and to go forth and to multiply the earth. And here's the bottom line, guys. God loves people. I don't know why. The one song that we just sang there says that we're objects of wrath. That that for whatever reason, God decided to show us mercy. But we lose our focus. And we focus on the horizontal. And we get all wrapped up and preoccupied with the things around us, the things that are earthly. And we lose this visual perspective or this, this spiritual perspective that we should have with God. We lose this fellowship. And when we lose that, we become earthly-minded, become earthly-sighted, we become earthly-hearing. And it's that wrong, it's that problem that causes us to have this mindset of what a horrible world. Why would you want to bring kids into it? I can't wait to meet Jesus. And, and I, can't, I can't, by the way, I can't wait to meet Jesus either. But it's going to be in his time. Today, tomorrow, I might die until I meet Jesus. If I'm spared death, that would be a great thing. But if I have to die, it's something that billions of other people have done. And the earth is multiplying. My oldest son just brought to my attention that we have passed the 7 billion mark. And that in the 1900s alone, we are growing exponentially. The world has had a pretty stable population up to this point, but we are growing exponentially. People are are being born by the, the millions, literally. Now, I don't believe that it's the world can't support that population because I am of the belief that during, we're going to get here in just a little bit, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ... Uh, That's a lot of prophecy and a lot of dispensationalism that I'm not going to get into today. But trust me when I tell you this, the book of Revelation makes it very clear. Christ himself will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. With a rod of iron, there will be no kingdoms that will stand against him. He will be, and I don't mean to demean Christ, but he will be the man as we know it. And I believe during that time when the child lays at the hole of the asp or the snake... And the lion lies down with the lamb. I believe during that time, people will be born. Oh, you talk about 7 billion people. There's going to be maybe more than that in a heartbeat. It's going to be a time that is unprecedented, a time that the world has never known. It is a time that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, that you will rule and reign with him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not? 
that there will come a time when you will judge angels? You're not over the angels now, but there's going to come a day when you will be in this glorified body that 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, when the mortal shall put on the immortal and the corrupt shall put on the incorruptible. I want that day. I want that day more than any of you. Sometimes, don't be surprised if I do it now because I'm getting old and weepy. I get like all teary-eyed when I think about it. And it's coming. But the bottom line, why are we on this rant? God loves people. The end of Matthew chapter 28, God tells us. 19 and 20, if you want to read it. Last two verses of the book of Matthew. It's not that hard to find. Go ye therefore. Oh, and by the way, the verse before that says, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore. That's what the therefore relates to. Jesus Christ is Lord, folks. You can't have him as Savior and like forsake him as Lord. That's two sides of the same coin. You got one, you got the other. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That was the last thing he shared short of when he talks to them in the book of Acts. But even then, it was the same commission. And we as believers, I have a little tirade that I do before I get into the, the message. I promised you that, I so we weren't turning to 2 Corinthians 6. But my point is this, that we as believers, we get all caught up in extraneous things. We get all caught up in this world. We get all caught up in Republicans and Democrats and taxes and, you know, the evil and the wrongs and the injustices and who should be on the Supreme Court and who should get off the Supreme Court. We get tied up in all of that. And we say, what a dark world we live in. And I'm telling you, you live in the United States of America. You live in the greatest nation on earth right now. And all the patriots out there that want to stand up and clap. I'm one of them. I love this country. But this is not heaven. We like to complain, but you know what? The fact of the matter is, this is earth. This is now. This is a cursed world. This is how God said it was going to be in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. This is no surprise. And yet we're shocked. We're dismayed. We're frustrated. Why do we allow the things of this world to take away our Christian joy? And I understand that there can be situations in your life that are that close, they're very personal, they're inside your own family, they're with your own relatives, they're with your own flesh and blood. I understand all of that. And I understand that the pressure that that can put on you in your life, I have been there. And I have made bad decisions spiritually because of the pressures I've been under. Because I'm speaking to you doesn't mean I'm sinless. But I know from the Word of God, and I know from the power of the Holy Spirit, and I know from the confession and repentance that's taken place in my life, that the answer is Jesus Christ and a continual focus on Him every day. So if you leave with anything today, that's what you're supposed to leave with. That's where the joy is. Because apart from me, John 15, you can do nothing. You want to live in this world? You want to pay attention to all the politics? You want to get wrapped up in the evils that are in the world and all the injustices and why people shouldn't have babies? Knock yourself out, Jesus says, but you're not going to have any joy. So what do we do? We go bowling. We 
We spend money on music. We, we do this. We do, we do a lot of things because we want to be happy. Happy is temporal. I went to a coffee house in Lebanon last night to listen to a band from our homegrown and, and uh, Mount Calvary. And I'm going to give a shameless plug. I did it in the first service. Might as well do it in this one. Anybody that goes on the web, go to noisetrade.com. N-O-I-S-E-T-R-A-D-E.com. Look for fellow heirs. That's not H-A-I-R-S. That's H-E-I-R-S. Fellow heirs, fellow heirs in Christ. Go to fellow heirs or on Facebook, fellow heirs. You will find where you can download four songs that you've probably heard up here. It's excellent. It's a good album. And you can get it for, here, listen, free, F-R-E-E. Beautiful praise music. If you want to give money, you're welcome to do that. That's, it's not something that you're required to do. What's my point in this? My point in this is simply that last night I was happy. Will said he's glad that I sat in front of him because he knows at least somebody's there having a good time. But I was happy. Not only was I happy, there was joy in my heart. And I just was able to worship God. And it just helped this morning when I was singing these songs. It just, it, it's undescribable, what, indescribable what we can feel emotionally. And emotions are temporal when we're worshiping the Lord. That tirade is over. Bottom line, God loves people. And that's why during dark times, it's necessary for us to press on, have babies, reach people, serve the Lord, be diligent. Now, the story we're going to read is during dark times. I thought somebody said that the fly was dead. During this, just ignore the fly. During this time... We are in the time when King Ahab, maybe if I keep moving, King Ahab is king of Israel. How many of you have heard of King Ahab? Okay, most of you. Some of you haven't, so let me just give you a little bit of background. He was one of the most evil kings that the northern kingdom of Israel had ever known. He had a wife, and her name was Jezebel. How many of you have heard the name Jezebel and know that that's not a good name? Okay, most of you know that. Okay, well, that's where she came from. She was his wife. Now, Ahab has passed away. He had a son who was Ahaziah. He passed away without a son, so his brother Joram took the throne. So Joram is on the throne. Now, if you really want to get confused, in the southern kingdom of Judah, there was a king named Jehoshaphat who had lived during Ahab's time, and he had a son. Guess what his name was? Joram. These two Jorams are ruling at the same time. That's really confusing. So which Joram are we talking about? Okay, the northern king, Joram. He is king in the story that we're going to look at. And his queen mother is Jezebel. She's still around. She ends up dead. She falls from a tower. She's ripped to pieces by dogs. Nothing's left but her bones and skull, which was prophesied by God that that would happen. So I hope you don't ever die like Jezebel. But if you think you live in dark times, this was dark times. And there was a group of men, and they were prophets. And these prophets were mentored by a man named Elisha. The man named Elisha was mentored by a man named Elijah. 
How many of you have heard the story of Elijah was taken up to heaven in a flaming chariot and never died? Most of you have heard that. All right, well, his mentor, the, the, his disciple, was a boy named Elisha. And Elisha spent quite a few years with Elijah when Elijah was taken up in the chariot. Now, how many of you have been in a situation, well, you don't have to raise your hand. A lot of you, including me, have been in a situation where somebody has mentored us in a job situation or a discipleship, whatever the situation was, we've been mentored. And now it's time for us to step up the plate because the mentor is no longer here. Or the mentor says it's time for you to do. That's nerve-wracking. It's scary. Because it was always easy to lean. It was always easy to ask. And now that's gone. And I think this is where we find ourselves when we're witnessing. Because when we're alone in the Word of God, and we're reading it, or we're praying in the Spirit, or when we're in fellowship with other Christians, it's easy. But when we're out there face-to-face with this dark world, it's hard. And it's scary. And we're on our own. But we need to remember that Jesus said in John chapter 14 that when he left, he would send a comforter. He would send a helper. This is where it comes time when you need to trust in God. You need to trust Christ that that Holy Spirit is going to lead you and guide you. And you might mess up, but the bottom line is you need to be a light to a world that is dying. It is a dark world and you are the only light. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Do not cover with a basket. Put it up on top of the mountain so that the whole world can see it. Matthew 5.18. Now there is, it would be nice if I would put my glasses on because I can't read my notes. There is a time coming up, and it is called the time of the Gentiles. Actually, you're living in it. The book of Daniel talks about four kingdoms that would come to power. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And I want you to listen to what it says in Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. In other words, it will never be beaten, it will never be taken over. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, so to speak, Gentile kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Next verse, 45. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is worthy. Jesus himself said in Luke 21, 24, based on this prophecy of Daniel, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, speaking of the Jews, and they will be led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There is coming a time that Daniel's prophecy, that the stone that will crush all of the nations, it will crush the statue. This is the dream Nebuchadnezzar had. He saw this four-metaled statue. And the stone that was cut without human hands comes from heaven in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it crushes this statue and blows it to pieces. And the stone itself, this mountain, this rock, Jesus Christ, will endure forever and never be beaten. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 
through 27. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you would be wise in your own own estimation. In other words, don't be arrogant just because the Jews are under judgment. But a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Only a partial hardening, Paul says. Until when? Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Listen to this. And so then all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, one last thing I'm going to share with you, and then we're going to the passage. Jesus says in the Revelation to John, in chapter 10, verse 6, that the angel swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. That, folks, is the seventh trumpet judgment, which opens up the seven vile judgments, which are heinous, which are horrible, which are nasty. Chapter 14 goes on to speak of the sickle that comes down to reap the earth, and the blood was up to the bridles of the horses. So when does the fullness of the Gentiles end? When will it end? And I'll tie this all point together here in just a second. I know this is cool stuff because everybody likes revelation. Everybody likes prophecy. This is what I believe, and I believe I'm correct. The fullness is a key word. It means it's full. It means it's come to an end. It can't hold anymore. The fullness of the domination of the Gentiles over the Jews shall continue until the cup is full. Now, there are a couple different ways you can look at the cup. You can look at the sin of the Gentiles, or you can look at the salvation of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles will end when the last Gentile gets saved. Now it's time the prophecy to be fulfilled for the Jews to return from their sin and to be blessed by God and to be restored. So here it all comes full circle. Why do we need to be joyous, in fellowship, righteous, fervent believers in a dark world? Because people need saved. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. It's the whole reason he leaves you here after you get saved. He doesn't leave you here to get rental properties to get rich. He doesn't leave you here so that you can make somebody else's life miserable. He doesn't leave you here so you can buy a couple homes and have a couple, you know, investments. He doesn't leave you here so you can further this life. If you want to do all that, I'm great. That's, I'm happy. I've got a business. I want it to expand. I want it to do well. I'm, I'm like you. But that cannot be our priority in our life. If you aren't making will of Jesus Christ priority in your life and fellowship with him priority in your life, you will be living without joy. You'll be fruitless. You'll be ineffective. And you'll be miserable. Because it's not about this world. You want to put your focus on this world, that's the exact thing you're going to get, this world. That will be your return. 
book of Galatians says that know ye not that what a man sows, that shall he also reap? We all need to understand that. God loves people. And I'm telling you, if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't know that your sins are forgiven. You don't know that you're going to heaven. I'm telling you, you can know. I'm telling you that there's joy that surpasses anything that you know, that you have experienced. And I'm telling you that the answer is Jesus. And if you're a believer here today and you're not experiencing that joy and you're not living in the fellowship with Christ and you're not putting people first in your life, you can't have that joy. Jesus said, John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's go to our story. 2 Kings chapter 6. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place where we are living is too limited for us. Please take us to go to the Jordan, and each of us take from there a beam, that we might make a place for ourselves and where we may live. So we said to them, Go. Verse 3, Then one of them said, "Um, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered and said, I shall go. Verse 4, So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down the trees. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and he said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. Now, notice how excited Elisha gets. He says, well, where did it fall? (laughs) I like his answer. I mean, you know, some of us, we try to be all compassionate to the person. Like, oh, my, that's so terrible. I feel so bad for you. (laughs) He goes like, well, where did it fall? (laughs) No problem. And I think this is what God does sometimes when we go and we cry to him. Now, I'm explaining. I should be reading the passage. We know we go to God and we're all worked up and we expect God to be worked up because we're worked up. God goes like, it's not a problem. Where did it fall? Let's keep reading. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and he made the iron float. And he said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. That's it. That's all we get. The story's done. And many times I've read this story and I'm like, God, what is this doing in the Bible? What purpose does this serve? What are you trying to tell me? This is a strange story. This is not only a strange story. This is a story that makes unbelievers mock the Bible. Some people have said, oh, well, Elisha just took the the axe handle and he was poking around in the water and he hit the hole in the axe head and happened to get lucky and lift it up. That's not what the story says. The thing you need to understand about ancient weaponry and implements of husbandry is that they did not have holes in their axe head. They tied the implements to the stick with hemp, with rope. And what had happened to this fellow as he was swinging the axe was the rope had gotten loose. And rather than take the time to tighten it or stop using it, he just continued to use it. And he used it a little bit too long. And there it goes. 
We'll make some application to that in just a minute. This is the third time that we see Elisha cast something in to do a miracle. By the way, Elisha, when he took over for Elijah, asked for a double portion of Elijah's power. You could tell he was a scared kid. He was going to do this on his own now. Elisha was gone. If you read the passage there, he's really scared. And he's really not happy that Elisha's taken. As far as he's concerned, Elisha's taken too early. And so many times people... You know, you and I, we feel, God, why did you take that from me? It was too early. I wasn't ready. But God has his wisdom. And we're on our own then. And we have to do nothing but trust in God, trust in Christ. And I think sometimes maybe that's why God does it, because that way we keep our eyes on him. But the first time he cast something in, he cast in salt because the water was foul and they couldn't drink it. Salt is typical in the Bible, something that purifies. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. We're here to purify the earth. We're here to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second time, they had bad soup. He told Kyle and Cody to go out and gather up all they could find and throw them in the water and make soup. So Kyle and Cody went out and they got these poisonous gourds and threw them in the soup. And everybody sat down to eat and they said, it's going to kill us. You guys remember that? (laughs) So he cast in bread, grain. He put grain in the soup. Bread is typical of the word of God, is the bread of life. And it made the soup good. The third time, somebody lost an axe head, and he walked over to a tree, and he cut off a stick, and he threw it in the water where it fell in, the axe head came to the top of the water. So what's the stick typical of? What's the wood typical of? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Go ahead. No, it's typical of the cross. Oh, that's a stretch. Come on. Well, let me share this with you, because I thought so too. There's only three places where this Hebrew word is found in the Bible where it actually literally means what took place in this passage, a stick. One of them is in 2 Kings 6, where we're looking. The other one is in Lamentations 4, where it says the bones of the starving look like a stick. And in Ezekiel Ezekiel 37, he gives prophecy of... The reunification of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, and he takes two sticks and puts them together and makes one. Those are the only three passages. However, this Hebrew word is used in 282 other verses, 311 times. And every time it's used, it speaks of a tree. In fact, in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, it says in verse 22, that if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and you put him to death by strangulation or stoning, whatever process you use, and then post-mortem, he's dead, you hang him on a tree. Why would they do that? Well, as a display, okay? This is what the guy did. This is where he ended, okay? You people get the message? I think that's kind of a good idea today, too. I don't know how many of you agree with me, but I think it would help. But God told him in verse 23 that you shall not defile your land by letting him hang there overnight. Get him in the ground. So that's kind of a mercy thing, too, on the hand of God. Kind of grace. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.23. We just read it. Mark 15, 34, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you 
The word is forsaken, but the other word is, the same word is accursed. Why have you accursed me? 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore the sins on the cross that we might die to sin, live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. The word here, cross, is the tree. And I believe that that is exactly what you're seeing because as we go through the story and look exactly at what happened, it makes all the sense in the world for the believer and for the unbeliever. Let's look at the story. He's swinging this loose axe head, which, by the way, when you have a loose axe head, who knows here about rope and what happens to it when you put it in water and it dries? It shrinks. So if you have a loose axe head, instead of retying it, taking the rope off or putting a new rope on it, you just stick its head in a bucket of water overnight and take it out, and then the axe head is tight again. And eventually you will have to replace the rope, but that's how you retighten it. Unfortunately, this fella knew that the rope was loose and just kept using the tool. Now, I think the analogy that we have here is that we as believers in a dark world lose our edge. We lose our sharpness because we lose our focus that I was talking about earlier. And we begin to focus on the things around us. And sometimes as we're walking, we think, you know, I'm probably not as close to God right now as I could be, but we keep swinging that loose axe. We keep swinging it. We keep swinging it because we think it's still okay. I'm still in fellowship. Everything's all right. And then disaster happens. You feel like God is nowhere. You feel like God doesn't care. You think that God's not even listening to you. The axe head flew off. And I'm telling you that there's only one place to get the axe head back. You need to throw the stick in. You need to throw it in where? You need to throw it in wherever it was that you lost it. Let's go back to the story. He cried out to the master. The axe head was borrowed. Seriously, you as a believer, your salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit, your fruit in witnessing, what of it comes from you? My ability to stand here and the eloquence maybe that God gave me, if you think it is, I don't know what it is, but I know that I don't in and of myself have the power to come up here and do this. It is the Holy Spirit that drives me to want to come up here, and it is the Holy Spirit that speaks through me, I believe, when I'm up here. This is not who I am. I'm not a nice person sometimes. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. They've seen me. I'm not a perfect person. But I have been given a gift to share the Holy Spirit, the Word, with you. And I don't want to abuse it. And so I've entered this with fear and trepidation. I worry, worry, study, study. Because I want to come up here and tell you what God wants you to hear. I don't come up here to tell you stories. I gave you a shameless praise for the band. Okay, that's what I do. This is the Word of God. You cry out to the Master. Because you just lost a gift that was given to you, and it's not yours. And you know that you are responsible before God. 
you know that you stand in front of Jesus Christ the Lord. You know that all you have was given to you by him. And you know, you know you have to answer to him. Whether now or before the throne of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3. You know you're responsible. He says, Master, the accent was borrowed. What am I going to do? Then he tells him, in verse 6, he says, where'd you lose it? Like I said, I love how he says it. Where'd you lose it? No big deal. Now here's a guy that's walking with Jesus Christ. Here's a guy that is in fellowship with God. Here's a guy that knows that the world is not our focus. Here's a guy that knows only God can rescue us and redeem us, whether it's in our salvation or in our physical life. He knows that God is the only one we can turn to. So he doesn't get excited. He says, well, where'd you lose it? This is God. This ain't too big for God. God can get an axe head out of a pond. That's not a big deal. And I think the answer here for us is, where did you lose it? Where did I lose it? We know our life. We know what was said in that phone call yesterday. We know what we did a couple weeks ago. We know what we did to get that job. We know that we lied when we did that. Maybe nobody else does. Just you and God. You need to go back to where you lost it. And you need to tell that to God. 1 John 1, nine says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What kind of God, what kind of idol, what, kind, what, what does the world have to offer you that can do that? What is there out there that is as great as our God? We were singing that. How great is our God that He can forgive the sin, the heinous, grievous, evil, wicked sins of your mind. That He can forgive that based upon what His Son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. And after the young man says, I lost it there, he takes the stick, the symbol of the cross, and he applies it right there. What happens when he applies it right there? There's restoration. God gives back to you what you lost. You might lose it again, and you might have to tell him where you lost it again, and you're going to do that a million times until he takes you to glory. But that's the process, folks. And then there's one last thing. It wasn't good enough that the kid lost it and that he said, no problem, where'd you lose it? The kid pointed it out. He took the cross, the stick, he put it there, the axe head floated. There's still one more part to the story. And this is the coolest part. What does it say in verse 7? He says to him, and he said, I get chills just before I read it. And he said, take it up for yourself. Whether you are a Christian or whether you are an unbeliever here today who has never trusted in Jesus Christ, when you see what is available to you and you know that the gift of salvation and the gift of fellowship is right in front of you, floating right there on the water, and you know that you are responsible for it and you know that you need that, 
It's the last thing you need to do. You need to take it. You need to reach down and you need to pick it up. You notice that Elisha didn't pick it up for him. Remember of the guys that said he poked around on a stick and got it and handed it and put it? Elisha didn't pull it out of the water. Elisha did the miracle. God does the miracle. And God asks us to receive it. So whether you're an unbeliever today and you've never heard this and you know that you need to trust Jesus Christ for your sins and that God died on the cross through His Son that you might have redemption, there's an axe head floating in front of you today and I'm asking you to take it. I'm asking you to pick it up. I'm asking you to forgive, ask for forgiveness for your sins. Confess them to the Lord and He will be faithful and just to cleanse you from your sins unto all righteousness. And if you're a believer today, I'm asking you to come back to the foot of the cross. Come back to where you lost it. Ask for forgiveness and come back to fellowship with Jesus Christ that you might walk out those doors for the mission that you were left alive on this earth for. Stop focusing on this darkness and focus on the light. Let's pray. Thank you for this day and thank you for your love, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Father, for your Son. We just pray, Father, that as we leave here today, we would not lose focus and that we would remember where we lost it, and that we would trust you. And Father, I do pray that if there's someone here this morning hearing the gospel for the first time, that they would be willing to trust Christ and be forgiven from their sins and given a new life and a Holy Spirit that will guide them from this day forward until glory. Thank you again for all the things you've done for us and for who you are, for we are lost without you, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.